I've got two places for you to turn this morning. Welcome to those who are here and to our online attendees, some members, some visitors. So we just welcome all of them. Our text is in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 12. 2 Kings 17 verse 12. And when you get there, put a marker. And I also want you to find Exodus chapter 20 and put a marker there. Exodus chapter 20, three times. Exodus chapter 20, and then also 2 Kings chapter 17, and that's where we're going to begin. So when I tell you to turn to Exodus, it won't take very long, right? I'm going to read verse 12 again in our text about how Samaria, Israel, provoked the Lord to anger. 2 Kings 17, 12, it says, For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Now through Moses and to the forefathers of these very Israelites, God spoke these words. And this is Exodus chapter 20. So go ahead and look there. In verse 3, I'll start reading. He said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now watch this. Visiting That means punishing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Now the children of Israel have violated these commandments. And now they're reaping the consequences that God said they would reap. And I want us to look at those consequences and how that plays out for what the scripture calls the third and the fourth generation. This has been a matter of confusion to some people. We've touched on it in this church from time to time. But I think it bears teaching again. It's obvious enough that the generation who sinned against God in Samaria in our text has begun to suffer the consequences. But what about the third and the fourth generation? Well, if you look in your Bibles at 
the word generation, and that's why I asked you to actually turn to Exodus chapter 20. Look at the end of verse 5. The word generation is in italics. And we've learned that that means the word generation was not in the original language. And the reason it's put there is to help us understand the translation of the Hebrew language into the English language. The translation is not always smooth. The the word-for-word translation from one language to another is not always as helpful as you think it might be. If I were to translate something from Spanish to English word-for-word, you'd say, have you lost your mind? Why, those words are backward. This one goes before that one, not in the Spanish language. And it's the same with any other language, just like Hebrew. There are times when a word, an English word, is supplied to help us understand what the context of that translation is. So the word generation is not in the original language. But translated literally into English, if you took the Hebrew and translated it directly into English, here's what that part of the verse would say. Exodus 20, verse 5, there at the end. It would say, visiting the iniquities of the father upon the children unto the third and fourth of them that hate me. So although the word generation is not in that original language, it's implied. The word fathers, that would be the first generation, wouldn't it, in this sentence? The fathers are the first generation. The children mentioned here are the second generation. So you have the fathers, the children, and neither the word first or second or generation are in that part of the verse. It just says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. So what is implied there, even though it's not stated? The first group that's called the fathers would be the first generation. The second group called the children would be the second generation. Those words mean something if you look at them in their context. The children are the fathers of the third generation. So you had the fathers, first generation, the children, the second generation, and who are their children? That's the third generation. So the second generation would be the fathers of the third generation. Those children mentioned in verse 5 here are the fathers of the third generation. And then it goes on to the fourth generation. The word generation is found many times in the Bible, just not here. So it's supplied. But we can still learn about the generation and what God said about the third and fourth generation being punished. We can still learn about it from this text right here. But a key phrase in this passage here in Exodus is, it would be the last five words of verse 5. Of them that 
hate me. That's the key. Because what comes to some people's mind is, well, if my great-grandfather sinned a sin, perhaps was an unbeliever, then three or four generations after him are going to be punished for what he did. And that's a misinterpretation of this text. The key is, of them that hate me. That's the key, of them that hate me. Boy, this is going to be good if you'll just stick with me here. So don't think for a moment that because a man's great-grandfather was an unbeliever who hated God, that God would send the man who is a Christian, who's his great-grandson, to hell because his great-grandfather was an unbeliever. That's not how it works. We know that's not how it works. He that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus didn't say, now you're going to have to wait three or four generations before you can come to me. And I'm so glad he didn't. And I could spend a really long time on this, but I'm just trying to help you understand why the third and fourth generation would be affected by the sins of their father and to understand it in the proper context. Now, the Hebrew word for hate that's mentioned here in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 20, if you're just joining us, that word for hate is also translated as the word enemy and enemies. If the first generation is the enemy of God and never repents, God will visit or punish his iniquity. If that man's children continue as the father did of a generation that hate God and never repent, then God will also punish the children. You see how that is? In fact, God will continue to punish the third and the fourth generations of them that hate me, he said. And no man naturally loves God. He naturally loves himself and is the enemy of God. In fact, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 makes that very clear. Because Romans 5.10 said that all of us were God's enemies. All of us were of a generation that hated God. It said, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. See, that's how we don't become enemies to God anymore. By being reconciled to him through the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, God's not going to save his enemies. He's, they're either going to be reconciled to him so they're no longer his enemies or they'll be destroyed. And the reason we are no longer enemies is not because we are three or four generations down the line of our forefathers. It's because we've been reconciled to God, saved by the death of Jesus. Now, the third and fourth generation of those who hate God are going to continue to hate God unless they're reconciled to God by the death of his son, by putting their faith in what Jesus did for their sin. 
And then when we are reconciled to God, regardless of the fact that we were genealogically the third and the fourth generation of one who hated God, we're born again and we're children of a new generation, aren't we? One that loves God. That flesh that was of the third and fourth generation of them that hate God, under which all of us are included, by the way. We were all enemies of God, and if you're not saved, you're still an enemy of God. By choice. You hear the gospel. So we're born again, and we're children of a new generation, that is, one that loves God. Who's the first generation of that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, the word generation does not mean only an age or a period during which a group of people of similar age lived. It does mean that, but it doesn't only mean that. It also has a spiritual application. And in that case, the word describes a group of people who are begotten, not just physically, but by the new birth. They're born again. And when we were studying the book of Matthew on Sunday afternoons, it's been a few years, Brother Fulton actually taught on that because there was confusion with some about what it meant when he said, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. He taught on that because people were locked in to believing, well, that means that there's a certain group of people who are physically born, and until that generation passes away, these things won't happen, and it was a misinterpretation. So I won't go further with it today, but I will say that it has been taught on before. Now, let's look back at the children of Israel. One way the third and the fourth generation of Israel have suffered for sins, the sins of their fathers, is the physical loss of freedom. And one of the examples that comes to mind there was during the Babylonian captivity of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel after the kingdoms had been divided. And Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, here is what he wrote. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. Now let's get really practical here. When the Jews went into captivity in Jeremiah's day, there were older men, older women, Younger men, younger women, there were children and grandchildren and so forth. In fact, in many cases, I'm sure there were four generations, four earthly generations of people who all went into captivity at the same time. The adults had turned away from God. 
and they had ignored the many warnings that he'd given through not only the prophet Jeremiah, but through the prophet Isaiah, who wrote about Israel going through the same thing a few hundred years before, not even 200 if I remember right. So they had that example. They had those archives, and yet they didn't learn from it. And so the you had the fathers go into captivity in Babylon. You had the children. You had the third and the fourth generation go into captivity in Babylon. But then there were also children born in that captivity. Now imagine that. During that 70 years of all of those new generations of people who were born in captivity. So it's not too hard to conclude that the children suffered as well as their sinning parents and grandparents by being captives in a Gentile land. The children could not walk up to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Hey, Neb, can we go back home? You know, we were little when we came here. We didn't cause this. We didn't do any of this. Now get this, the Babylonian captivity is not what kept the children of Israel and the third and fourth generations from loving God and keeping his commandments. They were at fault. Had they kept his commandments, they would not have been in captivity, neither the first, second, third, nor fourth generation of those people. So they can't say, well, God was being unfair to us. These Babylonians are way too strong for us. Listen, God operates off of his perfect foreknowledge and sovereignty. He knows who's going to love him. He knows who's going to hate him. And when God visits or punishes the iniquity of Judah's sin, or in our case, Samaria's sin upon them, by putting them in captivity, that doesn't prevent God from raising up a mighty prophet or leader in the midst of that captivity. And his perfect will in this punishment of Samaria is not to completely abandon his people, but to bring them to repentance. That's what God does. He wants to bring them to repentance. Now go back to our text in 2 Kings 17. And you can stay there for the remainder of the lesson and just write down the verses that I give you after that. So we're back in 2 Kings 17. I want to read verse 12 again. For they served idols whereof the Lord had said unto them, You shall not do this thing. The word for is also the word because. So if you look back in verse 11, it said, And wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger for or because they served idols. And God had told them not to do that. This was the primary reason God was provoked. All of the high places, all of the incense burning to these false gods, and all of the other wicked works sprang from the worship of idols. 
In fact, the children of Israel were more obedient to their idols than they were to the God who delivered them from bondage. If you ever wonder how powerful Satan is. Because when you look at that, you would think, wow, God delivered Israel from 400 years of bondage. He's delivered them from their enemies time and time again up to this point. And yet these people would rather obey a man-made religion with dumb idols that can neither see, hear, nor taste. They can't do anything except just decompose. But that's how powerful the prince of the power of the air is. The same one who came in the form of a serpent into a perfect environment where God had fellowship with Adam and Eve and convinced them it's better my way. Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 13. Romans 6, 12 through 13 says, excuse me, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members... As instruments of righteousness unto God. Now the children of Israel had made sin their king. They had allowed sin to reign over them. And because sin reigned and ruled in their hearts, then they obeyed the lusts thereof. They yielded their members as instruments of unrighteousness unto the sin that ruled over them. They willingly subjected themselves, they placed themselves under the rule of sin and the law of sin. In fact, there are two authorities represented in that Romans passage I just read you, and here's how here's what they're called. Sin and God. Unto sin and unto God. Those are the two phrases in Romans 6, 12 through 13. Those are the two choices you have. You can yield yourselves unto sin, or you can yield yourselves unto God. And that word yield means to stand by. Not to stand by as in to hang around and wait on, a, on the next airplane, but to stand by. To if somebody says, does anybody stand by me on this issue? Who stands by me or who stands with me? That's the meaning of the word yield here. And the children of Israel in Samaria stood by their idols. They served their idols. They yielded themselves to their idols and to the man-made religion that was around those idols. And that was sin. So they yielded themselves. They yielded their members, their bodily members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. And when they did that, they excluded themselves voluntarily from yielding their members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
You can't do both at the same time. You can't serve two masters, the Bible says. And offering defiled sacrifices to God on a replacement altar in the name of religion is an attempt to yield yourselves unto God and to yield yourselves unto sin. To yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Looky here, I'm offering a sacrifice to God. And yielding your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yes, but I'm using a defiled sacrifice and I'm doing it on an altar that God knows nothing of. He didn't institute that altar. He didn't ordain that altar. Trying to do both. But what's the effect of all that? Do you weigh it out and say, well, they are sincere and they are offering something, but it is defiled and it is on a substitute altar but it is to God. Their intentions are good. You don't weigh it out. It's either yielded to sin or it's yielded unto God. And God just has one way of doing anything at all. And he tells us about it. He doesn't make us find out by trial and error, although many try that. He tells us exactly what it is. He's a very narrow-minded God. And we get accused of being narrow-minded Christians. Don't take that as an insult. It's true. We don't gloat about it. We thank God that there is just one way. If God had said, well, there is a way to come to me, but you're going to have to find out what it is, and you won't know until the very end when you yield your soul to death and you stand before me, and then I'll tell you if you got it right. Boy, what a miserable life that would be, wouldn't it? For somebody who's seeking God, and yet a God like that would make you guess no, he said there's one way. And if there's one way, then you're held to that one way through his son. And if you get called a narrow-minded person because you believe that no matter who it is, they must come to God through his son, Jesus, that's okay. Don't try to defend yourself. Just say, I'm just saying what God says. And God is a narrow-minded God when it comes to that. And I'm glad he is. He has one way. If we look back at the steps that led to Israel serving these God, these idols, and I think I mentioned this last week, it's going to teach us something. They went from seeing the idol. Remember King Ahaz of Judah? He saw the, the idol, the altar of Damascus. To substituting the idol... In King Ahaz's day, substituting the great altar for the brazen altar. To sacrificing the idol, and now they're serving the idol. That's what verse 12 told us, for they served idols. They didn't get there overnight. They didn't wake up one day having served God the day before and suddenly serve the idols the next day. It's a process. And it begins with a turning away from God. And when you turn away from God, you don't go into neutral land. There is no point zero where you don't, you're neither, a. this is not an integer line where you have a zero here and then positive on one side and negative on the other. And you say, I think I'll just be a zero. You're either on one side or another. You're either for him or you're against him. You either serve God or you serve mammon. You either yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God or unto sin. And when you serve idols... You didn't get there overnight. 
And God knows this process. He knows it better than anyone. I want to read to you a passage in Genesis chapter 19 because this is going to help you understand how it is Samaria, the children of Israel, got to the point where they are. In Genesis chapter 19, the angels of the Lord, these were two messengers, told Lot to take his wife and his daughters out of the city of Sodom. And we know what the Bible said about Sodom. It was a wicked city. And God had set his mind to destroy it and Gomorrah. Now, Lot was a Christian. I'll give you the Bible on that in just a minute if you're not sure. Lot was a Christian, but he raised his family in Sodom. And it showed. Listen to how Peter testified of Lot's spiritual condition as well as the influence that Sodom had on him. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Speaking of the Lord. And delivered, that is the Lord delivered, just Lot. Now that doesn't mean only Lot. That means just Lot. He was just. He was justified. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them. Now listen to this. In seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Notice it said Lot was just. It said he was righteous. Therefore, he is a Christian. But his righteous soul was vexed. And that word vexed, if you don't watch Pride and Prejudice movies, that word vexed means tormented or pained. It's not some sort of uh, witchcraft term. It's something that happens to us daily, depending on our circumstances, our environment. Now, how was Lot's righteous soul tormented? How was it vexed? The scripture told us it was vexed by dwelling among the wicked, seeing the wicked, and hearing the wicked. Seeing the wicked. And with the word seeing in mind, let me read further down in that Genesis 19 passage, down to verses 16 through 17. Verses 16 through 17, and this passage speaks of those angels, those men, whom God sent to deliver Lot. It said, and while he lingered, that's Lot, lingering, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Now this is the Lord talking to him. Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. 
Neither stay thou in all the plain, escape, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Now, just in case you think, well, when the angels of the Lord said, Lot, get out of here and take your wife and your children with you, that Lot said, come on, let's go. That passage tells it that those angels had to take him out of there. They had to lead him out of there. He was not ready to go. Now, why didn't God just say, Lot, don't stay here anymore. Go find somewhere else to live. Because it wasn't just staying or dwelling in Sodom that vexed, that tormented Lot's righteous soul. It was in seeing and hearing the wicked. As Second Peter taught us just a moment ago. Lot could not dwell in Sodom without seeing and hearing the wicked. And God knew that seeing the wicked in Sodom was a big part of the problem. So he mentioned it. And that, in fact, it was the biggest part of the problem. Because he told Lot, don't look back. In other words, don't turn around and see what you saw before. Do you all remember how Lot got to Sodom in the first place? Boy, this is good. Yeah. Abram said, man, you choose whichever. Now, that's the Texas Brother Andy interpretation there. You choose whichever way you want to go. You go over here, I'll go yonder. Vice versa. The Bible said Lot lift up his eyes, and he beheld the plain of Sodom that it was well watered. What led him to Sodom were these two things right here, his eyes. And so God said, don't look back there again. You looked there the first time, and look what it got you. Abram was willing to go wherever I set him, and you would have done well to get your herdmen in order and have them stop fighting with Abram's herdmen, and there would have been no need for this separation. But you didn't. And you lifted up your eyes, and now look what it's gotten you. Your sons-in-law are going to die back there. And some bad things are going to happen after he leaves, too. But God, in fact, not only commanded Lot to not look back, but he would have killed him if he did. Think about that. God would kill Lot before he would allow him to look back and return to that wicked city. Now, we don't know when God does this. And don't ever get in the practice of saying, well, I know why that guy died right there or why this one got killed in that wreck. You don't either. (laughs) You don't have any idea what's on the mind of God. But we know, and this is by the testimony of the Apostle Paul and in some other cases in the Bible, that in some cases, if you continue in your sin, you must needs go out of this world. In other words, God will take you out. He'll take his people out. For different reasons. Sometimes to protect them against something that they would have encountered had he let them stay. To keep them from trouble. To keep them from sin. Other times because they've continually been disobedient. And God said, okay, that's time to come home. I can't let you be involved in this sin anymore. And we don't know when that is. We don't know when he does that. But he does. 
And he wasn't going to let Lot go back. He could have simply said, you go back, I'm going to kill you. If you look back, I'm going to kill you. And we know what happened to Lot's wife. She looked back and God killed her. He turned into a pillar of salt. But think about that. Lot was one of God's children by faith in the coming Redeemer. The one who would one day come and die on the cross. In Lot's day, that's how he saw it. And Lot was righteous, but God would rather kill him than let him return to that wicked place. And if you look back in that passage in Genesis 19, 16, I just read it. It said this about Lot. And while Lot, or excuse me, and while he lingered, and while he lingered, where was he lingering? He was lingering in the very place God said he was going to destroy. To linger is to tarry or to delay. That's what people do when they don't want to leave somewhere. My youngest granddaughter doesn't want to leave our house. In fact, she doesn't want to leave my arms. And that could change next week, but I take full advantage of it now. I'm a little ornery about it. If someone else is holding her, I'll walk up and get real close and stand there knowing she's going to reach out and grab my shirt with both hands and pull herself out of the grasp of her mother or my wife. Now, that's going to come back and get me one day, but right now I'm enjoying it. She wants to linger or tarry with me. It's, in the, it's one of the reasons I don't go shopping with anyone in my family is I'm not a lingerer. I'm a hunter. I know exactly what I want. Most of you guys are the same way. And I go get it. And I can go in there and have one item on my list, and that's what I end up with. But I don't want to linger. But I want you to remember this about Lot. Lust will make you linger. Lust will make you linger. The lust of the flesh made him linger. He was in a city he chose with his own eyes. He raised his family there. He was vexed with the filthy conversation that is the walk or the lifestyle of the wicked seeing them and hearing them from day to day and even after the angels of the Lord said this place is going to be destroyed God's going to consume it he lingered lust will make you linger there wasn't any good reason for Lot to do anything other than lead his family in a hearty sprint out that door and out of that city but that's what happens when sin is what you yield to. If Lot was a Christian, although a weak one, and he was a Christian, and he was weak, then we ought to learn from him that God doesn't want us to linger around sin either. The children of Israel, including those in Judah that we read about from Jeremiah, looked at the idols, they saw them in the groves, and the sin that followed that look was predictable. When they substituted their man-made religion for the religion God gave to them and their fathers at Mount Sinai. And because they had substituted a man-made religion of sin, of idols, for the one true religion God gave them, then they began sacrificing animals to those man-made idols rather than bringing gifts to the Lord as to the priests specifically as God had commanded them.
Now look in our text, 2 Kings 17, verse 13. It says, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. Now let's look at that for a few moments. The word yet and the word testified actually come from the same Hebrew word. They are the same Hebrew word. They both mean testified. But that Hebrew word is also translated as the word witness. After all, that's what testimony is, isn't it? And this tells us a whole lot about God. Even though his people, the ones whom he delivered from bondage and did so time and again, have turned their backs on him to serve idols, he testified against them. Now the devil might try to convince you, well, God was just piling on. I mean, these people were captives and they were in a bad way. But actually, God was being merciful by testifying against them. God could have wiped out Adam and Eve and never created another living being. But he was merciful. And he sacrificed innocent animals and clothed them after they had sinned, painting a picture of what he would do one day for sinful man when he sacrificed his only son who was innocent of all wrongdoing, yet took our sin upon him and became guilty. God could have let Israel be swallowed up completely by Egypt during those 400 years of bondage. But he delivered them because he was merciful. And here God could have let Samaria stay in captivity forever, yet the Lord testified. God in his mercy continued testifying to the children of Israel by the witness of his unchanging word. And that unchanging word promised to visit the iniquities of the fathers and the children upon the third and the fourth generation of them that hated him. But that unchanging word as spoken by the prophets also promised to deliver them from their enemies if they would turn to him and seek his face and do his commandments. It's merciful that God would yet testify to this stiff-necked and hard-hearted people who had provoked him to anger. It's merciful that God, even when we were his enemies, would send his son to testify to this world and then to die for our sins and be raised again for our justification. He said he testified against Israel and against Judah. Don't lose sight of this. In this passage, God wasn't testifying against Assyria or against Egypt or any other Gentile nation. He wasn't railing against Satan or his angels, not here. He was testifying against his people. The reason Israel was in bondage, Samaria was in bondage here, was not because their captors were stronger than they were. 
It wasn't because Israel had a woke military like ours is becoming. They were in bondage because of their own sin. And God testifying against Israel and Judah is very much like God testifying against the churches in the New Testament. I'll read you a passage from Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 12 through 16. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 16. Now I want you to notice who the Lord is testifying against and who he's not testifying against in this passage. He's talking to the church, and it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But, here's where he testifies against them, but I have a few things against thee. He didn't say here, and he does have plenty against Satan. But here he's talking to the church. He's testifying against the church. He says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. What did we have here in our text? They were eating things sacrificed unto idols. And to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So in that passage, God wasn't testifying against Satan as much as he was testifying against what the church at Pergamos had allowed. That was his chief complaint against them in this passage. They had allowed doctrinal heresy, both by those who held the doctrine of Balaam and those who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And that was the fault of the church. And the Lord yet testified against them for it. Now, what could God have done both in the case of the church there and in the case of the children of Israel? He could have said, yeah, he could have wiped them out. Or if he left them here, he could have said, I'm done with them. I don't have another word to say to them. And there were times when there was silence from heaven, as it were. But it doesn't mean the people didn't know what to do when God wasn't giving his word to a prophet or to an apostle. They had the word of God already. It wasn't like they were having to wait on God to give some new revelation so they would know what to do. He had told them what to do. From Genesis, to Exodus, Leviticus, and so forth and so on. And we'll have to stop there. I've run over by a couple of minutes. Next time we will continue with God testifying, this time against the church in Corinth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good attention of the people, for those who set aside this part of their week, the Lord's Day, and sanctified it. So they could come together, whether in person or online, and be taught your word, encourage one another, and worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray we would continue to do that with your help 
in the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.